And now, coming to you live from the 72nd World Science Fiction Convention in London, England, with Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strahan and very special guest John Clute, it's the Coot Street Podcast! And they're off. I never know. Uh, congratulations, John, on being a guest of honor. Have you been guest of honor at a Worldcon before? No, I very much expect that um, one guest of honor per person per, wor- per Worldcon as an entity is all we get. <laughs> and, and at this moment, after six days of extensive activity and very intense activity, I think that's probably about the right number. Um, what kind of activity? Are you, I mean, this is very unusual to have a uh, critic, scholar, encyclopedist, sometime novelist. Well, novelist not unusual. The critic, scholar, encyclopedist, guest of honor is, am I right? Almost unique in Worldcon history. I suspect it probably is. I think there may be two things involved. One, I've been in this country for 45 years mm-hmm. in one way or another involved in the, the science fiction scene as, as mm-hmm. a writer, critic, editor, etc., etc., as trustee or trustee of the Science Fiction Foundation, mm-hmm. book review editor of the Foundation. All of this is accumulative within the English context. Not necessarily mm. the mm. worldwide fantastic uh, at large context that that is as they were so close to all our hearts, but also it's very very clear that this particular convention was designed from the get go by people who were taking the model of ReaderCon in the United States, mm-hmm. um, intense panels, panels that were thematically connected, making up a kind of narrative that was shaped obviously in essence by the people involved in those panels so that in that sense I was a more natural choice than the almost totally implausible choice I might have been had I been um, asked to be guest of honor in an American convention. I had as a matter of fact been in invited to be a guest of honor at, a, at an American convention. I cannot remember which one because as soon as they lost the bid, <coughs> um, you know, the, the, as it were, the bubble pops and there's, yeah. there's, there's no there there anymore and I escaped only, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I felt like Ishmael and I began to forget the whale immediately. Well, not quite guest of honor, but you've been honored guest in the sense of winning the Pilgrim Award at the Science Fiction Research Association, the Scholarship Award at ICFA. Uh, well, I'm going to interrupt you. I thought you were asking about world, world, world fantasy. Oh, world, well, no, I, yeah. world, world science fiction, whatever we're called. You know, the um, the world con. I guess my sense only one, only you only get to be guest of honor once at a world con, as far as I'm aware. Ah, I'm sure that's true. I'm sure that's true. I think Heinlein was only guest once. I think we we all have had experience if we've been around for long enough of having various kinds of positions, which are in various fashion to mutually mutually um, mutually supportive you know yeah. you get the the kudo they get your work mm-hmm. yeah. um, and that's 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 just part of the game and if you don't mm-hmm. if you don't get involved that way in a sense you're not doing your job sure based on your experience do you think this has been a different kind of world con to the, the other ones you've attended because it's just my observation that it seems to be much more of an international affair than you'd normally see. I'm obviously partial because I'm I'm kind of inside the way sure. here, uh-huh. although I'm not I'm not one of the operators, but I've certainly seen it from within, 
and from within and as objectively as I can be it's the most interesting world con that I've attended and that is a fair number I added them up and I can't remember the total because this is the end of a convention and one's arithmetic um, is the first thing to fail the next thing is the memory of one's own name my, think, my sense is that the, the internationalism, I agree with Jonathan, we, we've had any number of people come up to us, uh, people, people listen to this podcast in, in, in continental Europe, it turns out. But what I envy about uh, the British community, as you described it, and I envy it to a large extent about the Australian community, mm-hmm. Jonathan, is that there are critics and scholars and writers about science fiction and who, can, who can be recognized at these sorts of things. You have awards in Australia for this. Which is very difficult to do in the States. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I was asked a question this morning, which I think in the context of this convention I'd Mm -hmm. like to put to you. What do you think of the state of British science fiction today? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I have um, have a kind of endemic disposition not to answer that kind of question because I want to change the terms immediately. Mm -hmm. Because I, I no longer myself really think of science fiction itself yeah. as an appropriate term for what is, is happening at the, as it were, the, the coalface of, of, mm, sure. of Fantastica. Yeah. And I prefer to use the term Fantastica, sure. which now, in the 21st century, it's very much more applicable to what we used to call science fiction. But we used to define science fiction as a novel which was governed by its science fiction elements. And we now define science fiction, except for thought experiment books, um, as a novel which has a science fiction element. Yeah. That's a radically different kind of of, um, description. Um, The Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, which I've been involved in for now almost 40 years from the first contract, needs the, as it were, the heritage title Encyclopedia of Science Fiction and much of its contents are devoted to honoring um, the 100-150 years of genre science fiction that can be defined appropriately with exceptions as science fiction dominated by the American experience much, as I say, of the encyclopedia will always be devoted to that but any attempt to use the term SF, science fiction, speculative fiction, to describe the gradually evolving shape of the take of the SFE on the contemporary world of science fiction here in the UK or in America yeah. or worldwide would be impossible. It would be an impossible straight jacket. Sure. Do you think that the same change that you've described in science fiction, where it's Change this focus on what a science fiction story is from one that, that turns on a science fiction element to one that contains one is equally true for fantasy and or horror? I think to a, to a markedly lesser degree, I think despite all of our mm-hmm. efforts in the encyclopedia of fantasy and all my efforts in a book I called The Darkening Garden yeah. that 90% of horror and fantasy are already lubricious yeah. <laughs> <coughs> and always have been. Yeah. But SF could be defined more rigorously yeah. um, and had many more advocates of SF as a definable form yeah. over, the, over the previous century so that it is more of a transgression against the, the, the term science fiction to incorporate it into this kind of um, 
global um, global definition. Global, term, yeah, term the global magnet. Mega genre I've seen, super genre, R.D. Mullen from Science Fiction Studies, 20 or 30 years ago. But the problem with super genre, it seems to me, is that you're you're avoiding the issue. Yeah. <laughs> you're simply, you're simply throwing yeah. things in a bag yeah. and saying yeah. they're all there. We should mention, since you mentioned the Darkening yeah. Garden, that your new book, Stay, includes Stay, which is another collection of wonderful essays and reviews from Beckon Press. Contains the entire text of that, but without the illustrations, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, the entire text of the Darkening Garden, which is about, I think, 25,000 words, maybe 28,000 words, is yeah. very, it was a very short book. Yeah, um, very, very concentrated. Very, but it was a very avaristic. <laughs> it was, it was also a critical theory in the form of a glossary, uh, which yeah. it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a stealth critical theory. <laughs> Something but, you've been doing for decades, anyway. Yeah, it's, it's the only way I can, I can, um, as it were, get my, um, what you might call, I, what I do call an introduction to, um, stay, um, big term, oniric didacticism, which means. My didacticism is based on dream work. Yeah. Um, the only way I could get it under, I can get it under yeah. control. Um, so, a Darkening Garden um, makes an argument, a heuristic argument, about the kind of terror, as opposed yeah. to horror, really, mm. that I would think is relevant and necessary for our, as it were, survival as a literature and for our capacity to recognize the planet that we yeah. are, as it were, entering. Um, with our eyes wide shut or wide open. I want them wide open. And the, mm. the model of the darkening garden is basically a series of releasers for authors. It's written primarily for authors, mm. not so much for critics or for, for readers, for authors to say, okay, that's one of the ways that I can model my narrative so that it ends where John Clute wants it, which is a really utterly vastated, depressed vision of mm -hmm. the true nature of the world after you peel the rind of illusion and thickening and story types, peel that right <laughs> off. <laughs> and at the end, you have, you have the world as it is. Yeah. We're sitting here in a very nice hotel suite, um, in a peculiar hotel which has its virtues on the edge of what was once a thriving docklands. We're sitting in the midst of what you might call a starter dystopia. We need to know that in our stories, I believe. Yeah. And I think the same with fantasy, which is why the fantasy model is based on an underlying argument that 20th century fantasy is based on World War One, and it's basically because of Tolkien and Hugh Lofting, who's more important than C.S. Lewis by dozens of magnitudes, and mm -hmm. other authors like E.R. Edison, created fantasy in the 20th century to say, shame upon the world that exists. Yeah. So fantasy is an escape from prison, as Tolkien calls it. But I, I articulated that yeah. escape mm -hmm. from prison after a fashion which fitted into this accordion of relationships between the various story types we use and a world we need to recognize. And obviously science fiction um, as a set of thought experiments, as a set of arguable representations of how the world can be represented, sorry I'm saying represented but, twice in one sentence, <laughs> it is, it is this is what happens when you get exhausted. You say represented <laughs> twice or three times in the same sentence. Um, science fiction 
is is a is a narrow strobe that science fiction of course which is of any interest at all hmm. is a narrow set of strobes into into arguable futures and at the present time it is pretty clear that the thought experiment model is impossibly narrow for the complex almost impossible to define now that we need to take off from if we're going to write a science fiction story. Oh, when we you mentioned we have no nows to take off from. No. As Bill Gibson said once, um, I think almost in conversation with me or me in conversation with him, don't make that noise. Um, was that... No, don't worry. Okay, we're good. keep going. Bill Gibson said... We, no, we can go Oh, on. I we don't remember go. the exact quote, but it's basically, um, now our nows are too small to stand on. Words to that effect. Mm. Or well, I said it, and he said something better. I well, can't remember. Uh, and well, it's it's interesting when you look at um, the vocabularies that we've used to talk about science fiction and fantasy, and there are hardly any at all about horror. That a lot of this, uh, a lot of what you're saying, comes from a frustration with the with the available dialogues, uh, the, with the available vocabulary. Because when you mention in the Darkening Garden that a writer will recognize this moment, or a writer will recognize a cloaca, for example, in a way that a critic or a bookseller might not. Uh, but that's where the vocabulary has come from in the past. And, uh, it's, and it's also that, 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 that vo the critical vocabulary is a political act anyway. Yes, and when you, uh, when you take uh, the, the kind of standard template for talking about fantasy, for example, Tolkien's on fairy stories, you end up with this fantasy recovery, escape, and consolation thing. And I remember China Miebel saying that the idea of consolation in fantasy makes me want to throw up. Oh. China's correct and he's incorrect. Mm -hmm. uh, if he wants to talk about terror, consolation makes you want to throw up. If he wants to talk about Tolkienian fantasy at rot to its uttermost, mm -hmm. he wants to make, he wants to insert a bit of grammar into it. Mm -hmm. That consolation that you catastrophe is a counterfactual and yeah. it's a counterfactual based clearly in Tolkien's work on the fact that he found this world shameful and he was creating a model a matter of the world that could be seen as exemplary of a better outcome a better a, a, a heroism he came out of the trenches of World War One with the full knowledge with the exception of Ernst Jünger, we can get down to Ernst Jünger in a bit if you want. With the exception of Ernst Jünger, of whom he had never heard, it was no longer possible on this planet to be a hero, a yeah. military hero, to be a chivalrous hero. He created a world which was ultimately as desolate as this world, but had a story structure which enabled a conscious fellowship. A so conscious he, invented, he invented a salvageable world since he didn't have yeah. one. In the full knowledge that he was inventing it, mm -hmm. so I think in that sense, China is not correct to apply his sense of of um, as or nausea, moral nausea, yeah. to pure fantasy because it it, it it discounts the origins. But, but he's he's right, absolutely right <laughs> about ninety percent of fantasy that's written now because yeah. these these people have completely forgotten the anger. Of talking, mm -hmm. they've forgotten the tragedy, they've forgotten the counterfactual, and as part of the cultural amnesia of our times, they've forgotten World War One. So, is the problem with a lot of modern fantasy, perhaps the less interesting fantasy, that it has forgotten the world? Yes, 
It is it has forgotten the world. It, it does not understand that it does have a relationship to the world, an exemplary relationship to the world in my ideal heuristic. That is in itself, it, it is self not only a joy but a lesson. And if you think only of joy, you end up pumping some kind of organ that we don't want to talk about on the bridge. <laughs> so is there anyone out there, <clears throat> in your opinion, that is attempting to create original fantasy in that kind of epic fantasy space that is connected to the modern world, that does I'm, drive its story engine I'm, forward? I'm not entirely sure. I don't, I'm, my reading in epic fantasy is not exactly profound. Um, I'm wondering whether... Um, 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 Steve Erickson may be doing something of this sort. Yeah, mm. he may not be. My intuition is that he may well be doing. I think perhaps some vestiges of some stories by China Mieville course, actually yeah. fill uh -huh. the model rather than refute the model. So I've also wondered whether I mean I, I can see with China's non-consolatory approach to his fantasy yeah. that it has some you know, connection to the world we're in. Yeah, I also wonder if. Perhaps the more interesting link in some of the work being done by the so-called Grim Dark Group, Abercrombie et al., yeah. is that in their search for some greater connection to yeah. uh, a, a moral meat and substance, mm -hmm. that they are attempting to reconnect these stories back to the real world by using a, a gruffer, more violent exterior approach. Yeah, that seems to be likely to me. It also leads us to another kind of answer to your question about uh, whether or not I can d d identify any fantasies. Um, basically, at the present time, I don't think there's very much in the way of a pure enactment of the kind of genres that we properly identified as defining, as modulating um, the 20th century um, um, literatures of the fantastic. So at, at the present time, I think and it's an inchoate thought because it's a thought which, as it were, steps into quicksand, moral and intellectual quicksand, every every other step. Yeah. Because um, um, I'm old enough now to think that unless I have new thoughts, I might as well just die. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> you know, like it's there's no there's no point reiterating it all, but it means it's it's intensely difficult to to have conceits. Thoughts, onirisms, which yeah. is a word, is dream shapes with cognitive spines yeah. that thrill and chill the audience. It's very difficult to have them. Yeah. Do you think the 21st century is too young, really, yet, to have found the matter that its artists want to discuss about it in science fiction and fantasy and generally? I don't know. I think maybe. I think maybe. But I think maybe it's not so much young as it's accelerating so fast mm. that it's that it's very very difficult to 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 get a grasp. My underlying sense is that one of the primary functions of fantastic in the twenty first century is the combating of the amnesia that our owners attempt to impose on us. And the underlying arguments for thinking that it is an amnesia that is technically describable are long and complex, and we're going to really, really bugger it up if we continue. But let me try for just a second. Just a second. Um, there is a a term which comes from economics, and which I suspect we know, fungible. Mm -hmm. I've used it several times. It's basically treating two different things as 
being connected by that which can be measured an, an apple and a pear that which can be measured as shared between the apple and the pear is a fungible measurement a mm, fungible yeah. relationship and I think that the modern world for the benefit of our masters is being more and more commodified which is another way of saying that we are being transformed into units that are fungible yeah. mm. and that in a magic way which may relate in my back of my mind to one of Chris Priest's novel The Prestige that every single fungible transaction that we embark in leaves what you might call a prestige which is a amnesiacal ghost mm. of what is what is no longer wanted on the voyage yeah. that our masters have imposed upon us and that this accumulation of plaque of absence of cenotaphic hollows in our memory and in our and in our very shopping malls that mm -hmm. this is what is meant i don't think it is a mistake i don't think this starter utopia dystopia out here through our window is a mistake i yeah. think it's i think we're being trained I think mm -hmm. we're being trained to be parishioners of the owners of our world. And I think Fantastica is ideally set up as a complex set of transgressive, challenging story models to jostle us enough each time a good story is told that the knowledge can stay, to use the title of the book I just published, which had mm -hmm. that argument implicit in some of its pieces that the the stories we tell need to stay in our minds long enough not to be erased by them yeah stories fantastic is about telling sticky stories do you think enough creators are taking up the challenge of that kind of story though never that's the point I was going to get as well because if that's what Fantastica is going to do then Fantastica has to overcome its own inertia of course it has to overcome and for example we mentioned Tolkien that you, you could write an entire history of fantasy of the last 50 years as an attempt to escape Tolkien or an attempt to reinvent something that looks less like Tolkien and, um, Jonathan mentioned the... the, the I, I will interrupt you to say that your voice was probably somewhat muffled by the fact that you were, in a sense, transgressing the world machine by the fact that the local airport sent one the, of its the, planes the, the masters, <laughs> yeah. um, to spy on us as it passed. Sorry, yes. what, if, was, if, you, if, what if, was that question the, again? Well, the, well, the point is that science fiction and fantasy and horror have to overcome their own pasts as well, and hmm. uh, there are various ways of doing that. I think that uh, one time Jonathan and I were talking about what is what is a new way of, of doing, let's say, fantasy, because Tolkien, the, Tolkien and anti-Tolkien is, is still doing Tolkien. You're still using the same terms that you've invented. Then you get the hard-boiled thing. You get... Uh, you get somebody fairly, somebody original, a darkly satirical writer like Terry Pratchett, who seems to be doing something that doesn't look like Tolkien at all. Uh, how many writers like that can or have emerged in the last half century? Um, quite a few probably have emerged, but quite a few probably find it very difficult to um, be published, mm -hmm. to maintain the anger, maintain the, the edge of vision. It's very hard not to be co-opted um, by a world in which 
repressive toleration, to use Herbert Marcuse's mm -hmm. 1965 term, which should be <clears throat> engraved in our foreheads. Yes. It should not have been forgotten in 1975. It should be a term which we continually carry before yeah. us. We are being allowed to do this. Yeah. The stupidity mm -hmm. of the people who attempted to oppress the Occupy group was as the stupidity of those of our owners who didn't understand that the way to deal with Occupy was to let them shout as much as they wanted because that is what repressive toleration is all about. Yeah. Giving us the semblance that we make any difference. The, the use of the term repressive toleration also is a way of describing, of course, um, how it is easy for an author to be allowed to say what he or she wishes to say and to have it seemingly make no difference at all, which does not make for a career structure, no. a career track, mm -hmm. a, a, a life track, and it does not make for internal happiness. I mean, I don't think we're going to win. Yeah. I mean, if that's, if, that, if that's what all of this adds up to, an implication that, a, that one is describing a world in which we're not going to win, I think that's a good description. But I think this is this is the Beckett fight. You know, fail, fail, better, fail, better. Keep sure. on, keep on failing. Because if you don't do that, all you are doing is playing, as it were. You know, it's basically cosplay. Hmm. Isn't part of the purpose of science fiction, though, if it has such a thing, to attempt to include ar arguing with, fighting with, talking about? the start of dystopia out there as so. part of the conversation. Yes, and absolutely. I'm not sure that I see that enough when I look around as a reader myself. I'm sure you're you know, correct. I, 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 can, I can think it. of a couple of key examples where I feel it moves towards it. And the one that comes immediately to mind is Air, you know, the, the Jeff Ryan yeah. novel. Mm -hmm. But when I look for successors Jeff, to that... Jeff is, a, Jeff is a radical writer, and a writer, a highly politicized writer, and he has been allowed... His career has been allowed to drift into into the shallows in terms of getting his his best mm. stuff published nowadays, simply because that is the way. Without thinking, it doesn't require an inimical intelligence or mm. much direction. It's just the way it works. Mm. The, the system is not going to significantly value. It will tolerate as long as as long as he can finance his own books. Sure. It'll, it'll tolerate him saying whatever he wants to say, but it's, but the system is not designed to do more than yeah. absorb him. Yeah. Is there a challenge in, for creators in trying to find a way to have this conversation in a way that readers are willing to hear? Because I mean, the great challenge, the great gift of Tolkien, I guess, is that there he has this enormous solitary fantasy conversation in this masterwork that is intensely readable and engaging and to some degree for a lot of readers who consume it presumably not something they're aware of as being that conversation though mm. they, 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 they they take it in yeah when you, you look around at works today I, you know, I'm not sure that I see enough of that attempt either that that's surreptitious attempt to deliver an awakening occasionally one does run across an author a <clears throat> a book or two that looks that gives a semblance of a successful um, stickiness, a yeah. successful mm -hmm. um, capacity to stay the eye so that one sees that it is not just something that is about to be absorbed. I think I think the 
the complex refusals of closure and of and of easy outcome of the highly readable novels of Levi Tidar yeah. are a good example of how mm. a essentially non Anglo um, um, as were consciousness personality mm. can um, make use of the hypnotic um, structure of Western Fantastica and and turn it sideways and let us allow us to see something for long enough. Yeah. Um, we've had discussions over the last few days about the term Fantastica, which of course is applied by me mm-hmm. primarily to Western um, literatures and primarily to English. Um, it, it describes a, a, a change from a, a world to a planet, a change mm-hmm. to the consciousness around the 1800 or so that that stories are being told of a particular sort and in fact creating stories to be told because stories mm-hmm. didn't really stories didn't really exist before Fantastica did. Yeah. Um, well, of course. That's fables. Uh, yeah, sorry. No, if, if, if you, this is something that comes up every time we, we, we get into a debate with well, some mainstream critics, some Harold Bloom, for example, uh, is if you're if you're starting with Gilgamesh, which is pretty much all you have to start with, you're beginning to regard any kind of representational or or, or, or realistic or domestic literature as a subset of story. As Absolutely, a, as a fairly recent and fairly small subset of story. At that, that's a that's a neat way, I think, of of beginning to characterize why. Um, the creation within the frame of Fantastica of the short story as a form mm-hmm. is not only <coughs> due to Fantastica, as it were, due, due to the mm. kind of stories that wanted to be told by people with a new consciousness, but also the fact that it, as it were, plucks out of the deep well of the past the real tradition of, of the story mm-hmm. both throughout world literature. And is another way of describing the realist novel of in England at any rate and in, in continental Europe as a rump fiction as not it's that it that it basically is too much a tool of of its culture it's it too significantly lacks the analytical edginess of to my view books which may be written much less well mm. like say Frankenstein which is a profoundly subversive book if you actually pay attention to the monster mm-hmm. that what we have begun to see in the early 19th century is maybe a resumption a resumption of the inherent awareness that our world is a story-shaped world that we that we understand things through stories and that stories themselves mm-hmm. are inherently non-mimetic Mimesis and story do not match. It's been a con job mm-hmm. of the last two centuries of critics, including a, fig- a couple of figures still alive in the Guardian uh, TLS this <laughs> very day. It's a con job yeah. to say that, that words put together in the inherently implausible order that conducts a story are words which describe a mimetic photographic reality. They I do think. not. My only resistance to that is that that don't resist. Uh, no. Bang! Oh, oh yeah, right. <laughs> you're you're fighting the machine. <laughs> um, the only problem is you can you can generate great novels from that 
machine. Mm. Uh, mm. The, you can generate... Uh, what I, what I, I've begun to think of the Victorian novel in, in the same way I've begun to think is of, of Dutch Mannerist painting. It's enormously well-imagined. It's enormously detailed. Mm. And it's the same little dog in every painting. Uh, in other words, it's, it becomes so familiar that the familiarity is the attractive attraction. Uh, it's, it's not so much mimetic or non-mimetic as uh, comforting versus... I think this is, not, this is probably China's idea as well, because I think he was writing something like this in The Guardian, uh, that the notion of a literature that reinforces your view of reality is the one that The Guardian and The New Yorker and The New York Times and so forth, and, and going back to magazines like the 19th Century and the Edinburgh Review mm-hmm. have been mm-hmm. ch- ch- championing for, uh, for a century. That, the counterculture, meaning us, has never been able to mount that degree of, um, I don't know, journalistic and critical and educational power. Um, well, I mean, power is where it comes from, in mm. a sense. Uh, I don't, I think, if there is any value to the term fantastica, one of the conditions, one of the mm. enabling um, descriptions of Fantastica is that it's basically a, a, a literature which by virtue of its examples and by virtue of its relationship its to the previous century of enlightenment is in itself um, as it were disruptive of the owners mm. so that it's not going to be enabled in the way that we would expect it to be enabled by virtue of our sense that it is opening our eyes. That is not what they want. They want the, re- they want the reiterated dog mm-hmm. done with a huge devotion to, to psychological truth. It's marvelous, psychological mm-hmm. truth. Characters, we are such marvelous creatures, aren't we? Except that we fool ourselves with our sense that we are unique, our sense that we are not... Um, walking on the stilts of evolution and destiny and family and our previous memories. It's a marvelous illusion that we do have about ourselves. And it's a marvelous illusion which, um, as it were, is not properly examined, but by, by, by maybe implicitly examined in the very recent movie, um, Her, mm-hmm. in which it seems necessary for a very intensely intelligent um, science fictional um, presentation, mm. in my view, of the near future as an arena in which the those humans who are privileged to remain privileged are being groomed for a kind of singularity. It seems a imposition on the part of the Hollywood mind and perhaps the science fictional mind to assume that we require an AI based um, superior um, um, technology, interactive technology, um, social media technology to accomplish this. We assume that we are difficult to fool Hmm. and we are absurdly easy to fool. Within five years um, Scarlett Johansson could be generated by a distributed network of computers with no consciousness at all and I don't think we need consciousness as a 
conceptual model to describe the creation of a, of a new world in which we have become at the behest of the masters who own the, the only, who operate mm -hmm. the impersonal networks of the world, become performative parishioners in that world as obedient and sweet and hand-holding as the protagonist at the end of her. The protagonist at the end of her begins damaged. He can't, mm -hmm. he can't do the job of doing those nice, nice interactions that humans do so well in the zoo. Yeah. So he's gradually trained to become a, a better human being by a machine which we are fooling ourselves if we think needs to be conscious. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing that surprised me about it, and it's related to this, is, is, is the notion of closure, because uh, the, the subversive part of the film to me, and we are now doing something which John and I love to do, spoil uh, the ending, is... We can talk about spoilers in a minute. We can talk about spoilers for a minute. <laughs> but, but it doesn't back down from the singularity. It doesn't deal with the traditional Hollywood narrative or what I think of also as the traditional Mike and Cri Michael Crichton narrative. But if you have a science fiction idea, you have to shut it down by the end of the movie. Absolutely. You have to shut it down by the end of the novel. And when, when Charlotte, Scarlett Johansson announces, well, all the AIs are going off somewhere else, that is a, mo that is a movement that no Hollywood movie, I think, would have made before. Yeah. Uh, because it implies, uh, as I've said before, that science fiction almost as a, by its nature involves opening up, involves generating change, which will not change back. And the traditional narrative, and Michael Crichton was the master of this, even though he didn't know how to write, shuts it down. Right. Every Michael right. Crichton novel takes place in a limited environment. There are dinosaurs, but it's okay, it's on an island. You know, there um, is the Andromeda strain, but it's okay because it's in a lab. There's this thing in Sphere, but it's okay. Because, in other words, as long as the change is canceled, the novel is a, is, is a satisfactory thriller. Her refuses to cancel mm -hmm. the change. Absolutely, I think I think that sentence and my sentence um, come yeah. together very um, compliantly. <laughs> I think we're mutually compliant here yes. in our in our understanding of he, of her as as although I think it's defective in some ways. Yeah. Um, hmm. As 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 a film which is 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 very very much very radically a science fiction movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if science fiction fantastica is to be successful. Yeah. Should it refuse to reestablish the status quo? Should that be its, it, it, its modus operandi? Or if it reestablishes it, it reestablishes it, and as we're in the cold light of reality, as we, as our, as our insect eyes see it, yeah. Um, so that we can understand that the status quo, we can understand what the status quo actually is, yeah. mm -hmm. because we are not being told the truth. The world does not tell us the truth. And telling the truth may well do nothing more than change our vision of what we are not going to be able to change. Tom P, this is what happens. We don't we can't we can't predict that. All we can predict is that as it were to use the image again, is that Fantastica, because of its of, because of all of the genres that come together, all the ways of seeing that come together, all the ways of unpacking and challenging and and working through our dreams and translating them into into visual characters, all of these think of them as think of them as, a, as kind of an insect eye. Think of an individual genre as an individual eye. Insect eyes may be harder to fool. Mm -hmm. 
is telling the truth of the world too hard for most Fantastica? Yeah. Of course it is. It's hard because it's hard in- inherently. Yeah. It's hard because uh, it unpacks, if I am correct, a world which is not friendly to us. Yeah. Um, it's hard because our owners want us to tell the truth after a fashion which is defined, as we were saying before, in terms of repressive toleration, repressive but when you say, tolerance. When you say the world is not telling us the truth, I, I go back to the idea of, of closure and uh, or, or not. That idea, that specific idea in those terms is, is, is in Hollywood movies. It's in movies like The Matrix. Sure. It's sure. in movies, it's, it's in all the Philip K. Dick movies, and it's even actually in some real Philip K. Dick. Um, but the difference is that, by and large, in these movies and these popular stories, and even a book which I've not read yet, but I certainly have read about Robopocalypse, I just like to say that. <laughs> Robopocalypse. It's all fixable. In other words, the, the, the world may be lying to us, but at some point we can break through the screen, we can fix things, we can okay. discover the reality, we can uh, subvert the producer of the TV show that is our life. Yeah. The problem with that consolation, mm-hmm. consolation, that consolation is that instead of understanding the term the world does not tell us the truth as a description of the inherent structure of the world, as a, of the organized world, as of, the, of the, the whole past and future of how institutions, personalities, countries, um, Freudianisms, whatever you want, mm-hmm. work. It's reduced to a conspiracy in which a particular class is telling lies to us so that when that class or person or villain has been exposed, then the truth is out. I think that is, that is part of the way the world does not tell us the truth. Yeah. It tells us, it gives us, it gives us up, as it were, um, um, rubber ducks to sink. It, it, it so some of the subversive function of the fantastic is itself subverted yes. uh, by using the appearance of it. I was thinking about this in terms of, uh, we've talked somewhat about uh, the YA dystopias, the Hunger Games, the mm-hmm. divergence, and so forth, um, and why they're so popular. And I, th- I suspect that part of this involves not recognizing that young people have such a bleak view of the future, but you can present a bleak view of a, of a dystopia and by doing so, you're reassuring your viewers and readers, that's not us. And to some extent, you can even make that argument about 1984. You can make that argument about classic dystopias. They're, they're, they may be awful warnings, but in the end, the, they're saying, it's not us, we're not going there, it's okay. I think that's probably a fair thing. I've had a thought while you were talking, uh-huh. yeah, <laughs> that, that um, so many of these young adult dystopias, these wastelands, are very good body English representations of the way it must feel for a person with narcissist personality disorder when he or she looks at a world which is not paying her proper attention. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's, 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 that's a killer. <laughs> that kind of does it. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to put it in the context of a little 12-year-old sitting, sitting two floors below us reading Divergent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other, but, but the, the other thing, which has nothing to do really with, uh, well, not directly with oppression, is that uh, I do think that readers like the young adults sitting two floors below us are in need of some kind of story that they're not getting anywhere else. They're in need of sure. some kind of adventure. They're in need of some kind of landscape in which action makes a difference. 
because they're growing up in a world in which they don't see how their actions can really make any difference. Is that the, the core attraction of something like the, the dystopia, you think, to young adults? The idea that it gives uh, some kind of path through a confusing world that they see from their perspective where action can actually achieve something? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm really, I'm, yeah. no, I'm, 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 I'm agreeing fully yeah. that, that, that all of these young adult dystopias and all these quasi-adult dystopias are all very, very similar. Yeah. Mm. They, 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 give us, they give us, as it were, um, as it were suitably acculturated glimpses of the truth. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm, I'm fairly certain they wouldn't be quite as successful as it, if, if at the end of the third volume of The Hunger Games, which is what, the... Um, Mockingjay. Mockingjay. At the end of Mocking, if Mockingjay ended with a sentence like, Katniss Everdeen loved Big Brother. Yeah. I don't think this would be a huge best-selling series. <laughs> <clears throat> no. Uh, I wonder if it, if, if it could be, though, if there is a, a path forward where those kind of tales could be told to that audience, or are they... Is it not the right time in their lives to expose them to those stories? Uh, my sympathy with young adults is infinite, but not that infinite. Yeah. I, I think... I think it would be really neat if young adults could be exposed to stories in which the entire world was not um, inimical because they found the world difficult. Yeah. And mm -hmm. that when they begin to find the world less difficult by learning how to kill people and learning how mm -hmm. to, as it were, get under the Wizard of Oz mask of the secret master, who's not really that much of a master because mm -hmm. all he is is a Wizard of Oz, um, that after all these things are accomplished, the sun begins to shine properly again and they can step tentatively hand in hand with their um, putative mate depending yeah. on how old mm. the audience is they haven't screwed yet or they have screwed mm. but mm. it doesn't really matter There's, they are reassembling in a traditional American fashion I suspect that almost all of these stories if they manage to end their story arc without going bankrupt will end in a reunion, a reconstruction of some kind of family. Yeah. It's very heartwarming, it's very American, and it feels like, to me, it's just another way of pulling the shades over the eyes of kids. Yeah, yeah. But, so, but. ah, but. <laughs> <laughs> to go back to Fantastica and the insect eye, which is a way of perceiving the truth, one also has to think of Fantastica in the 21st century as an astonishingly efficient weapon in the hands of our owners, tragically. If one looks, for instance, at the Marvel Cinematic Universe, yeah. one sees, I think, and I think I wrote about it in the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction in an entry on Captain Marvel, the Midnight Warrior, the Winter Soldier, whatever yeah. it's called, um, that it is a marvelous exemplification in its latter pages, if you guys have seen it, of Marcusean repressive tolerance. Yeah. That we are allowed within the frame of, 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 of a movie, which yeah. is a pure Western statement of Imperium, mm -hmm. to say to ourselves self-forgivingly that it was Hitler-based villains who caused all of the difficulties we have had over the last yeah. 60 years yes. in America, even including the manipulation of 9-11, um, even yeah. including the creation mm. of the of the 
um, you know, the security theater state that we that we, we inhabit every time we, as barcoded fungibles, attempt to pass through an airport and leave part of ourselves behind as amnesias, which the wolves of our owners eat for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> we are... <clears throat> we have created tools of that of of narrative hypnotically effective narrative structures that i suspect have a kind of poisonous effect on the literatures of the peoples of the rest of the world i would include japan in us mm -hmm. obviously that that it is terribly terribly hard to create your own literature certainly within terms of science fiction as so many people are trying to do when you have this Medusa gaze of um, of owner Fantastica, yeah. the Medusa gaze of owner Fantastica. There's mm -hmm. a phrase. That's um, staring you down, yeah. causing so, your children to spend the money you spent a week, um, as it were, growing tobacco for the killing fields yeah. on one three D movie that tells them lies. Yeah. yeah, this is this is something which is the downside of of an extremely powerful generic, multi generic, um, transgressive weapon which can be can be used to colonize as well as to subvert. So fantastic has been appropriated against I, us in effect. And it can it can be. Look at this convention where, mm. I mean, we have had a very fine convention with mm. full panels, hundreds of people really interested in the kind of arguments that we are mm. all making. But there are nearly 8,000 people there, and many of them are deeply, deeply involved in the visual media. Mm -hmm. And the visual media, the guys who do, the men, women who do, but they mostly seem to be guys, um, who create these visual media, like the movies I'm describing, mm -hmm. we're talking about, are people whose own sources of are come out of comics, come out of advertising, come out of, of previous movies. They don't come out of the of the as it were the the historically binding storyableness of of fiction. Yeah. They they come out of worlds which are already a radical remove from any kind of genuine threat to the world order. Do you think that the move in the community of Fantastica mm. to involve a broader range of views from around the world helps to counteract this? It can't help but help. Uh, whether it helps enough, it, the future is there to, as we're discovered. Certainly in the enterprise I'm engaged in, the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, there's a huge increase, and just the beginning of a of yeah. in quantitative terms of an increase in attention paid through entries, author entries, country entries, um, that begin to do some kind of job of at least treating um, what I would describe as a frame of reference as 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 global, and that's yeah. going to require lots of lots of joining entries and our entries that we that involve some of the argumentation that we've been having today but at the same time yeah things are beginning to to become clearer the literatures of the of of other countries that have had their own complex histories 
of, to use the term again, transgressiveness, are both more important in themselves yeah. and more accessible to us. And I, when I say us, oh. I mean a whole bunch of people because the country entries are written usually by people yeah. who come from those countries. Very specifically, by my adjuration to them that we talk, we're talking fantastica here. Don't worry if most of the literature in your particular um, country is better described as fantasy or myth or this or that. Screw that. We've, we are, we are talking mm -hmm. about, uh, we are talking about why I think if you, if you, if you end up asking for histories of science fiction and how it's yeah. evolved over the world, yeah. you are just coming up constantly against the fact that science fiction, as we understand it, is a first world literature. Yeah, yeah. And one of, we were the first night we were here, we were talking to that young Italian uh, scholar, Giulia. Giulia uh, Nucci. Yeah. Uh, and I, I gather she's working on the Italy. Yeah, she's uh, um, doing the Italy entry. And, yeah. uh, but, but the discussion was exactly what, uh, what you were describing, that in, in, if you look at the history of Italian fantastic literature, you can't, you can't tease out the science fiction from the rest of it. It's all a fabric. Hmm. And I think that's true in most national sure. literatures, except, except for the U.S., the U.K., and Australia, yeah. and Canada. So the practical challenge for the encyclopedia, yeah. and for its many millions of words, is yeah. to evolve into the Encyclopedia Fantastica. Um, in so many words, I am not, I'm not prepared to think we should call it that, but I've, internally I think of the new entries for new authors and for other countries do need to pay attention, a, a, a very direct and and binding attention mm -hmm. to this wider model, else we're never going to understand science fiction sure. of the present, and we're going to distort the literatures that are not English language literatures, yeah. and we have no hope of making anything stick. Setting aside the pragmatic mm -hmm. issues involved, yeah. is there value in attempting as well to look back at what science fiction and the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, fantasy and the Encyclopedia of Fantasy were? from the perspective of Fantastica? Uh, it's, a, it's a big task, and at the moment it's a tacit task. Sure. And I, I, can, I can personally conceive of, of the encyclopedia as it now stands as being, in a sense, two encyclopedias. Yeah. There is a central um, um, encyclopedia of science fiction, which justly honors, because that was our original remit, and mm -hmm. because it's important to honor, the science fiction, as we understand it, that that um, became mature and fully identifiable in the early 20th century, but yeah. can be traced back to the early 19th century and then earlier into proto-SF manifestations mm -hmm. as far back as you wish. So that science fiction uh, needs the full body of entries. It needs it needs theme entries which describe it. Yeah. It needs it needs all sorts of cross references which which begin to do the task, not of burying it, but treating it as a story which has essentially been told. Is there a need to retell the Golden Age story? There is certainly a need to understand that these, all these terms fit into an enterprise which had a natural life. As it, so far as it was self-defined, and science fiction was very busy self-defining itself from yeah. 1926 through 
the latter years of the century, insofar as that self-definition applies. And of course, I don't think that self-definition is wide enough, but yeah. that central core of self-definition is, to my mind, now a, a retrospective definition. Yeah. yeah, in the 21st century, it's a retrospective definition. Hard SF is retrospective. Most science fiction novels are novelizations of previous ideas. So fine. That, but that needs to be honored. Yeah. It's an important part of the of our imaginative enterprise in the West. But surrounding that, like um, Outer Onion Skin, of course, is an encyclopedia of contemporary literatures, which is considerably wider yeah. in the in the kind of entries written, in the kind of theme entries that are that are that are structured and will be structured, because much of this work hasn't been done yet. Yeah. It's yeah. ongoing, to better describe the current literatures, but they need they need to be argued, coherent, and complexly interwoven connections between the outer and the inner. There has to be a there has to be a narrative structure implicit. There has to be a there has the, the clarity which was, I think, to a large degree, Peter Nichols's um, creation. Yeah. The, the conceptual clarity of the encyclopedia mm -hmm. is. Is like the um, the schematic of the underground in London. Yeah. I think it's a work of genius. Mm -hmm. yeah. it, it it simplifies in just the right way something which is that might otherwise be intractable. Um, the decision, which may have been Peter's, I may have been involved in. I can't remember. It was nineteen seventy five or six, for instance, not to um, have entries on individual novels and individual texts, mm -hmm. but yeah. always to use the the route through the author might have been might have been seen as counterintuitional, but it is, was exactly right. Yeah. In terms of clarity, and there are other there are other decisions which were taken all the way through it. What themes to what themes to actually create? Yeah. So well, that the whole thing. Yeah. So it all seemed transparent. Well, I think Sorry. the other thing that made it a, a difference, and I, I I'm just thinking somewhere I have that old was a, a anchor paperback. The it's 1975 edition it was. 1979. Yeah. But it was yeah. the, the, the one I had, the first one I ran into in a, in a now defunct Crocs and Brentano's bookstore was like that. And it struck me what was different between that encyclopedia and remains different and other encyclopedia-like things that I'd participated in is that all these decisions about categories and pathways to the book were, were based on the reader's experience and not a scholar's needs. In other words, the terms, and this includes a lot of terms that you've been uh, that you've invented, have to do with the reader's experience, uh, which is why these terms are in opposition to a lot of literary theory terms. I think. Uh, I think that's absolutely true. Um, I'm 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 not myself. I, Peter was an academic, but he was in a sense a junior academic. Yeah. He was more a journalist and creative creative thinker than he was an academic. He took like, mm -hmm. he taught, he did that, but I never really had any of that. Um, mm -hmm. Um, cage of words to um, <laughs> ordinate my 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 thoughts. So I made up my own thoughts in a way. Sometimes, um, as it were, um, reinventing the wheel. But sometimes, Pacha, the intellectual academic students who refuse to quote anything I write because it's in the form of reviews, and therefore the MLA does not think it exists. <laughs> um, despite all of that, I think I. I I was I was creating and Peter was creating a series of non-compliant um, terminologies 
and mm. and and connectivities and the encyclopedia i think it's very lucky now that academics can use it to a certain mm -hmm. degree yeah. um i notice that they conspicuously don't use um most of the most of the theme entries which i have myself created mm -hmm. yeah. edison aid they can use hitler wins they tend not to and i haven't seen anybody come up with any reference yet to um, ruins and futurity, which is, an, I think, a very interesting yeah. um, um, argument about, once again, the beginnings of Fantastica, trying to source part of the world state, go away! I'm afraid that was the MLA sending a flight over to yeah. <laughs> They'll be strafing the place before exactly. they're it, um, the, um, the, the ruins of futurity entry argues that there is an interesting grammar shift between, say, the contemplation of ruins in 1750 or so and the previous centuries and the contemplation of ruins after about 1790 or so and that what has happened is that the contemplator of the ruin or the architect who builds a ruin in the present tense that re refers to the past um, has has been augmented by the by the gra grammatical realization that you can imagine a contemplator in the future yeah. looking at us mm -hmm. as a ruin yeah. which is very simple and very obvious yes. but it tends to come it tends suddenly to be visible yeah um, M. Volney's um, um, oh, yeah. um, uh, ruins um, Sir John Soane's request of his tame painter that he in 1796 paint his um, architectural design for the um, um, Bank of London as though it were a ruin, contemplated yeah. from the future. But what this, but what this, what this, does, in the mm. creation of science fiction in particular, if you have a ruin here and you have a contemplator there, you have a gap. Mm -hmm. yeah. That gap is where is what science fiction can fill. Excellent. Of course, another example is the 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 nineteenth century. 19th, yeah, Hubert Robert, the French painter. Yes, he's massive landscapes yeah. of ruins. Yeah. Uh, pre pretending to be the ruins of Rome, but actually, well, they are. Uh, but it clearly was in reference to all the monumental structures of his own time. And there are some actual late Hubert, whatever his name is, I Robert, admit, Robert, that <coughs> that are very specific um, ruins and futurity images. Yeah. The, the Louvre. There's a picture of the Louvre in the in as of 1786 or so, mm -hmm. and a picture of the Louvre as a ruin. Yeah. Oh. Viewed from with with figures walking around. Yeah. So other words, it's, it's it's not a present day ruin. It's a it's a ruin in the future. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's the other thing, of course, about it. The the ruins in 1750, even if they were manufactured, were ruins in the present. Yeah. But mm -hmm. as soon as you have a figure walking around who is also manifest waiting for science fiction to be invented properly so you can tell that person's mm. story then you have then you have a grammar one of the grammars that that create the new world that we recognize when we when we see a science fiction story told in 1825 and Jonathan Swift yeah. one not superior or inferior but radically different are we well, our time is just about up. Well, we are. Well, we, we just only we, barely got, got. We barely got started. We just yeah, barely got started. Sad. We touched on the mission of the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, the dangerous visions that science fiction needs to have that it may or not 
be having as it moves to, towards becoming fantastica. But we and I mentioned my title. Stay, stay, stay. 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 I said at least. Alas, we must go. But we will continue this conversation again, I have no doubt at all. I have no doubt. I'd like to thank you very much, John Clute, for joining us on the Coot Street Podcast this week. And Gary? We will be in touch when, when you settle down. I'm going home tomorrow. <laughs> There's so far to go. But from the world, this has been the Coot Street Podcast.